and thank you for, for coming along. Um, my name is Max Evans, uh, I chair the Christian Network here at the FCA. Um, a very warm welcome to you, especially if you're visiting us uh, from outside the organisation. Thank you for uh, taking the time to come over this lunchtime. Uh, we're joined today by um, uh, Simon Pilcher, Chief Executive of Fixed Income at M&G Investments, uh, and Roger Carswell, who is a speaker and author, uh, travelling around the country and speaking about the Christian faith. Um, Roger's going to interview Simon for the first part of our time today, and then uh, after that, he's going to give us a short talk just about some of the claims of the Christian um, faith. This is part of a, a week of things that are happening across Canary Wharf uh, this week under the banner Questions of Life. And you should have a, a leaflet for that <coughs> in your seats, which has information about all the talks and events that are happening between now and Friday. But for now, the, um, the subject that we've got before us today is, is this uh, a wise investment? Um, there will be, I think, hopefully, opportunity to ask a couple of questions at the end. Um, but for now, I'm going to hand over to, uh, to Simon and to Roger. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm not convinced about this short talk, but I think you could say short Roger is going to give a talk. And that's <laughs> it. um, it's really good to see you. Thank you for coming in the lunchtime. Uh, so I'm the Roger, and of course this is Simon, Simon Pilcher. I think some of you will know of him, but I really know very little, so I'm just going to be nosy and try and find, a, find out all that I can. Welcome. Simon, it's good to have you. I, I gather you coming to Canary Wharf is a little like coming out into the sticks, is it? No, I, I sort of, it's more a question of Daniel going to the lion's den, saying, <laughs> giving you all my regulator, and, uh, you know, I tug my fall off at every one of you. <coughs> but uh, you work in the city? I do. I work uh, just off Cannon Street. I work for M&G Investments, um, fund management business, and I've been there for 18 or so years. Right, and so before that... Um, I, my other sort of normal employer was Morgan Grenfell Asset Management, which became Deutsche. Um, I actually worked there twice, um, and uh, I quit at one point. I worked for a church for a couple of years. I was thinking about getting revved up and uh, going to a vicar factory and those sorts of things. <laughs> at the end of two years, I was uh, undecided, which proved decisive, if that makes any sense at all. It probably doesn't. <laughs> and they were stupid enough to offer me a job again. So I went back to Morgan Grenfell before joining m and uh, in 98. A few weeks ago, in a, an event similar to this, I was um, interviewing the, I think, the chairman of KPMG, or no, Deutsche Bank, but he then worked for the, for the government for a while, thank you. And uh, he said that he was responsible for um, giving out the bonuses. And on one occasion, he brought in a young man and said, your bonus this year is just a million pounds. And he burst into tears because it was too little. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> All right, you don't want to answer that one. And he actually went on to say it wasn't a question of the money, it was a question that his friends, his colleagues, were earning more than him. That's what really hurt I him. Think, I think that, that actually is a genuine point. Um, many people are really happy with what they get paid right until they find out that the person sat next to them is earning 3% more than that. <laughs> I mean, 3%, 30%, 300%, uh, whatever it is. I think that there is a real sense mm. in which um, that idea of someone's doing better than me uh, does rankle with people. Mm. Yeah. Amazing, isn't so it? So, I'd, I'd, I'd rather not know what people around me are earning lest I react that way. All right. Well, you wouldn't if you knew much. Anyway, we'll leave that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, when I quit Morgan Grenfell to go and work for the church, uh, 
my boss said to me, took me to one side, and I was a young man, I suppose I was doing reasonably well, and he said to me, um, Simon, I mean, I mean, if there's anything that we can do, <laughs> and I said, Ian, if you really think I'm leaving for the money, uh, I went for about 10% of what I was on right. at the time. That's right. that, yeah. Amazing. Um, sorry, to, I'm sure some of the folk here know, but um, I don't want to insult or patronise them, but just what exactly do you do? What, we've heard the description of your job, but what does that entail? Uh, a lot of my people who work for me would, would ask that same <laughs> question, I think. Uh, so... My team manage money. Um, they manage about £170 billion pounds worth of money, largely invested in the fixed income market, although our definition of fixed income is quite broad. It extends into making real estate investments, um, investing in uh, private equity. Uh, obviously, that's uh, the same thing as fixed income. Infrastructure, private equity. So we own uh, really interesting assets like um, Yorkshire Water, and um, red funnel ferries and uh, things like that. Um, but I guess my job really is managing people um, and trying to get them to, to work in an environment that helps them to be productive. So, right. yeah, I'm a, I'm a pen pusher, really. Roger. Right, OK. I'm going to keep waffling because apparently there are 20 people downstairs queuing to get in, so they're going through the system. And so um, we're just... Um, OK, so I'll give the long answer. Yeah, so yeah. for the moment, yes, all right. Yeah. So you're a pen pusher. And how many people are you responsible for? How many employees? Um, working for me, about 300. Right. Um, yeah, and I, when I started out, I've essentially got the same job that I had 18 years ago, um, well, the same title, but about 10 times as many people and about eight times as much money. So we've grown over that time and the breadth of things that we do has changed. Um, and really, since the financial crisis, uh, whereas previously we were very much focused on vanilla fixed income markets, increasingly we are stepping into places where the banks used to operate and as they shrink their balance sheets and their areas of operation, so we're increasingly stepping into a lot of those areas on behalf of our clients who tend to be pension funds and insurance companies. Um, and my largest client is the Prudential. Prudential owns M&G, and we run about 75, 80 billion for them. Amazing. Um, uh, can I ask yeah. you about the financial crisis? Because clearly, you know, the whole system was shaken uh, were you at all, do you have any inkling that it was about to happen? Prior to the cracks appearing, um, no, I don't think there were very many people anywhere who really thought that the world was about to implode. But as the cracks started to appear, and um, uh, Northern Rock, I think, was a pretty seminal point, uh, yes, I think is the answer. Yes, I, I was aware. I had a very, very good financials analyst team um, and the head of financial uh, analysis had an outstandingly clear view of what was happening within the banking system in particular. And, um, um, and at one point she took me aside and said to me, Simon, I don't get you because you unlike most people, realise just how serious this is. You realise that we might have no financial system at all. Uh, you might go to the bank on Monday morning and find that the bank is shut. 
and yet you understand this and yet you're not panicking you don't appear to be upset or concerned how, how is this it doesn't make sense uh, and so I was able to speak to Tamara about the fact that my um, confidence is not in my um, my job title in my status in my uh, in my ability to have a nice comfortable uh, retirement which might also go up in smoke frankly most investments would go up in smoke if the financial system had fallen apart uh, my status is not wrapped up in, in uh, the jobs that I've got which again frankly would have come to an end and, and I was able to, to, to speak to her about the fact that um, my confidence relies on somebody else and what he's done and my future hope is not um, of a nice comfortable retirement but lies in heaven um, and moth and rust may well cause things of this world to corrode and disappear mm. um, and indeed the financial crisis I think genuinely um, had the ability for, for all savings to disappear. Really? How close to the brink were we? Do you oh think? I think we were within days I mean, I had meetings with, with very senior people in Number 10 um, about it, uh, and very senior people at the predecessor of this organisation about it. No, I think we were within days really? of the whole system being completely bust. It gives great confidence to, to, that, to hear that. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> could, could it and these are the gentlemen, ladies, <laughs> who are going to make sure that it doesn't happen doesn't, again. I was going to say, <laughs> could it happen again? Of course... You can never say never, can you? No, I absolutely could. Um, Simon, let, you, you talked about heaven, your confidence, your hope. You said, can I go back to your childhood? Were you brought up in a Christian home? I was brought up in a home where we went to church. Um, uh, my memory of, of, of childhood religion is frankly of, uh, of rote and of a meaningless one-hour service on a Sunday... Uh, and of tedium and of it having no real connection with, with me at all. So church going, I mean I describe it as villagianity. Um, it, 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 it was the done thing for people of a certain cultural background to go to church. Um, you put on your tweed jacket and you go to church. Um, but it was, a, it was a cultural thing rather than anything that had any... Mm real meaning. So if I'd met you say at the age of, I don't know, 13 you're beginning your teenage years and said Simon, do you believe in God? What would oh, you I'd say? have said yes but I don't know what sort of a God I'd have believed in. And what were you like as a person? <laughs> it's very hard to be honest about yourself, but what were you like as a person, say as a teenager? Um, I was monumentally arrogant um, now, those of you who, those of you who, who know me uh, might say that not a lot has changed. <laughs> but I can remember as a 14-year-old, in all seriousness, thinking that the fundamental issue of the world was that nobody was as nice as me. And I really meant it. I really thought that that was the big issue, that nobody was as nice as me. Really? So I, and I was a obnoxious little... So and so. Were you? Yeah. And did that show in your school reports? I did quite well at school. Did you? Um, I was a bit of a teacher's pet. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what it's I'm not really liking the, the no, picture of this. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, clearly, something has radically changed. Um, what, what, what happened? What led up to the change, and then what happened? Yeah, so I, I was encouraged to go on a Christian holiday camp as a 15-year-old. And I had a fantastic time. We played a lot of sport. I enjoyed sport. I made a lot of good friends. Um, and morning and evening, I heard short talks explaining the Christian faith. And, and I heard the message there that, um, that I was a rebel, that I'd ignored God, that I'd treated him as if he didn't exist. Um, and that despite treating him as if he didn't exist, that God loved me. And he'd loved me enough to send his son, the Lord Jesus, to die in my place, to take the punishment that I deserved. And I'd heard that message explained uh, morning and evening over a period of days. And I was taken out for a, for a cream tea. We were in Dorset, a good Dorset cream tea, mm. by, uh, by my room leader. And he was a, a very impressive man. He, he was a lawyer. He'd given up his holiday. Um, I mean, he, didn't, he paid to go on the holiday in order to make it cheaper for, for us to attend. He'd given up his holiday to serve obnoxious little people like me. <laughs> and he asked me, what I'd made of the talks. Well, mm. I, 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 I'd enjoyed them. Mm. That's what he wanted to hear. And he then asked me, um, had I ever prayed the prayer asking for God's forgiveness that had been spoken about that morning? Now, the truth is I have not, but I knew what answer he wanted to hear and I wanted to please him because he'd given up his week, his ten days for me. And so I lied to him and told them that, yes, I had. I, and uh, he then said, well, that's, that's fantastic, that's wonderful. When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> and so the lies just multiplied. And uh, that's the trouble with lying, is that once you start, how do you stop? <laughs> and uh, that night, I recall uh, lying in my bed at night and having to acknowledge both to myself and to God, that I was not this nice, perfect person that I thought I was, and that I needed to ask God for his forgiveness. And I guess that, that's what I look back to. So, you were lying in bed, you prayed a prayer, I don't know, did it? Did you feel anything? Did, was no. There, any mo there was no, no emotion to no. it, it was a no. calculated, rational decision. Yeah, I mean, I think it became more rational subsequently, in the sense that, that really prompted me to do some proper investigation. Right. Um, so I had to start by acknowledging that I was not the nice person I thought I was. But over the subsequent years, um, the things that I really looked into were, <laughs> did Jesus really die and rise again from the dead? And that resurrection from the dead, which I became convinced of as a historical fact, yes. Uh, was what convinced me that this was true. And clearly I had to reconcile a number of different things. Look, I, I studied geology amongst other things at university. I had to reconcile, um, you know, how does science and Christianity fit together, do they, etc. Mm. So I've gone through a long sort of thinking it through a bit more carefully process. How old were you on the camp? Fifteen. So you're going to go to university subsequent to that. How was university life then? Because for some, it's a time to, you know, enjoy your so-called freedom. And I 
definitely pitched up at university with that intention. I had a very clear mindset that said I want to leave behind this Christianity thing. It's a bit inconvenient and I plan on living the life of a red-blooded 18-year-old. So it wasn't that you didn't believe, you, th you just wanted to practice differently. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Which university yeah. did you go to? Cambridge. Cambridge, okay. And you were studying geology, you said? Well, yeah, natural science, geology and metallurgy, and, and then I changed. It sounds really scintillating. Yeah, it was, it was good. Okay, was all right. Good. So, um, so did you... you know, well, no, the very first night, literally the very first night, there was a knock on my door, and uh, a young man I'd never met before, was a fourth-year mathematician, uh, he was actually the top first mathematician in Cambridge, knocked on the door and said, um, you don't know me, but we've got friends in common, I thought you'd like to know when and where the Christian meeting is. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, you did. <laughs> well, God was very good to me. And, you know, there's no ability for me to be an anonymous person, mm. just... Um, sort of disappearing and doing what I wanted to do, mm. which would have been very foolish. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, my time at university was great. I loved it. I played a lot of sport. I did a little studying. Um, <laughs> and I think my Christian faith grew in the yeah. And has that been the, the case subsequent, or have you had your ups and downs? Well, I think we all have our ups and downs, mm. but no, I've, I've never had a moment like that again, where I thought um, that life might be better if I weren't a Christian. Mm. Actually, the more I live my life, the more utterly convinced I am that, um, that, that God's not a fool and that he knows um, what is best for us and that, uh, and that living for him is just the best ex uh, adventure there is. So, uh, okay, so you came to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, proved him at university. Are you married? I am. I'm married to Rachel. We've got five children. Okay, so let me ask you how Christianity impacts you in various ways. Let's start as a husband. How, being a Christian, what difference does it make being a husband? Is Rachel a Christian? She is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so what difference does that make to you, do you think? Uh, well, it means, amongst other things, that, um, that work is not that important. Uh, there are things in life that are far more important than, than, than work, one of which is staying married, and one of which is, uh, is seeking to help my wife and children to love the Lord Jesus themselves. Um, so yes, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm some ideal father and, and husband, mm. but um, it does mean that I want to keep work very much in its box, mm. and that, that I want to be very involved in our local church and in uh, seeking to create an environment or make sure we're in an environment whereby we keep going as Christians. Mm. Uh, and that I love her and serve her. Well, it can be very tough for children. I don't know how old your children are, but if they're teenagers, say, the pressure at school is immense and very sinister in its attitude towards Christian things. It's secular, it's sceptical. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do you find your interaction with your children? On these so days? my children now range from um, 25 down to 15. So they've all been through teenage years. Um, I want my children to be asking questions. I want them to be investigating. I want them to be challenging whatever they're being taught. And that includes things that they're learning at home. So, of course, I wanted them to be involved in church and youth groups and things like that. But I want them to be really understanding at a deep level 
what they believe and why they believe it, or don't. Now, the joy for me is that they all currently um, would call themselves Christians. Mm. But, um, but that's certainly not taken for granted. Yeah. And clearly, as you move from a 10-year-old, when you've got a lot of your parents thinking in your own thinking, mm. certainly when you're a 25-year-old, that's definitely your own thinking. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've, we've always mm. had a... Um, let's talk about anything and everything mm. policy at home. Good. And Simon, at work, um, you're a Christian. Presumably you're known as a Christian. Um, and... Um, you know, getting priorities, you're dealing with, with money, uh, etc. How, 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 being a Christian, how does that impact your work, your relationships with employees, and your attitude to work? So people do know that I'm a Christian. Um, uh, I mean, partly that's because I would have invited quite a lot of people to hear events like this. Right. Partly, I guess, people just, you get a reputation, um, uh, and, and I'm known as a reasonably senior person for being a believer. Um, that's led to all sorts of different things. Um, I mean, one of the principles of being a Christian is that we realise that we are pretty rotten individuals, unlike for 13, 14-year-old me who thought that he was superior to everybody. <laughs> I realised that I am far from it. And um, I want to engage with everybody in the office, irrespective of how senior they are, as real individual people and to talk to them and to, uh, to speak to the, the security guards and the, the, uh, the, the, the people on reception, etc. Um, and not just to those who can help my career. So uh, treat everyone as genuine human beings. Um, clearly it's got to impact the way in which I conduct myself ethically. Um, so lying and... Uh, uh, other, other forms of, 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 of behaviour like that need to be out. But um, it then, as I said, means that I'm keen to talk to people. Mm. And a lot of people will come to talk to me about issues that they're facing. Um, there's a distressing amount of, um, of sickness and health and ill health in the office right now. And just engaging with people in sense as, as people who are facing those things then means that they want to talk about the meaning of life. Mm. So um, I think back to one conversation I had with our head of IT uh, and he said to me one time, Simon, I used to think you were quite intelligent. Well, I thought, this, this is going well. <laughs> where did you um, get that idea? Where did you get that idea, indeed. <laughs> and he said to me, but I, I understand you're a Christian. Huh. Um, I said, Alan, let's have lunch, I'd love to talk to you about it. Mm. So we had a lunch and um, he sadly didn't want to talk about it any further because I think it is logical and rational and mm. makes, sense, makes sense of life holds together. Mm. So I want to talk about my faith. I mean, he, he was the one who brought it up. Mm. I'm not going to ram it down anyone's throat. But um, yeah, I want to share the great so, news. Do you, do you hire and fire? It's a firing I'm particularly interested. Do you have to do that? Yes, I do. And how do you, you know, you could just devastate somebody's life, couldn't you? Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, these things aren't glib, are they? No. Um, over the years, I think I've probably fired more people for... Um, so we don't fire anybody. We come to a compromise agreement. <laughs> uh, we've come to a compromise agreement over, I would say, sort of ethical and cultural differences 
right. around how people conduct themselves right. much more commonly than relating to incompetence. So there's a certain culture and environment that I want in the office that is one whereby we're serving one another and it's not about me pushing myself up. We're there to serve our customers. Um, well, uh, do, do you have yeah. a sleepless night before or after a uh, firing? Yes. Sorry, a uh, yes. compromise? Yes. <laughs> yes. Several, yes. many. Time's virtually gone, but I do want to pick up, Simon, if I may, on something you said about this hope for the future. And um, are you talking there about life after death? Yes. So you believe that what we have here, whether it's three score years and ten or perhaps more these days, isn't all there is? Absolutely. So, do you believe in heaven and hell? I do. Why? You know, what evidence is there? Um, ultimately, the person of the Lord Jesus. So, the person of the Lord Jesus is a real figure of history, and if you've not looked into him, um, there's plenty of evidence from outside of the Christian Gospels that points to his life, death, and mm -hmm. resurrection. Mm -hmm. And Jesus spoke graphically about heaven and hell. Uh, and hell being a place that you want to avoid mm. and heaven being a place where um, we definitely want to go uh, and so ultimately I take him at his word because I'm convinced that he's the son of God and that, uh, that he's given evidence of that by, ra by being raised from the dead mm. yeah the, the resurrection when people say sometimes nobody's ever come back to tell us of course Jesus yeah. did didn't he yeah. exactly that yeah. and can I ask you, have you ever, even for a moment, since you came to that clear commitment in Christ that was sort of made solid and sealed, maybe as a student, have you ever regretted becoming a Christian? There have been times when it's felt inconvenient. Um, so, yeah, there have been times when it's definitely felt... And I would look back particularly to those teenage years. Hmm. You know, when you're getting... Um, the piss taken out of you at school. Mm. That, you know, that, that, it's tough, that's, that, that's tough. Mm. So, yes, I, but, but now, absolutely not. Why, by some distance, the best decision ever. Even better than marrying my wife. Really? But that yeah. was a good one, was it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, right. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I thought we were in trouble. And I'm happy for you to tell her that. <laughs> Simon, I've sort of got a feeling that... Uh, M and G are wanting to send a message that there's no need to hurry back this afternoon. So if anybody wants to chat with you at the end, yeah, you'll be great. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> my way of getting into that. <laughs> Let's do our appreciation, Zoe, to Simon. Thank you, Zoe. <laughs> I will stand up because I am quite short, if that's all right. Let me just say, this is um, the start of a whole week of activities. And I think on all of your chairs, you have this invitation. Um, so this evening, I'm going to be interviewing a High Court judge. Dear me, they're really putting me on the ropes on this, aren't they? Me interviewing a judge. It shouldn't be that way round. But still, and I'm going to be looking a little bit at the, the issue of does the evidence stack up? And we'll have a, a, a book very much on the theme you just mentioned, uh, written by a lawyer, examining the evidence for the resurrection, and he's entitled it, um, The Verdict is Yours, so he sort of treats the reader as a jury. We'd love you to, to come if you can, and it will be finished by 6.30, we promise that. And, uh, and then, when you've got the programme, a whole series of events. Uh, the folk at St Peter's Barge really have done a magnificent job in preparing this, so please do take one. 
And if any of you want at some stage to have a coffee, I don't know how it works, whether it's first thing in the morning or later in the early evening, you know, I'd very gladly meet with anybody and others would from St. Peter's Barge as well. Um, uh, I am a Yorkshireman. I, I always like to drop that word in just to sort of raise the level of sophistication in every meeting. <laughs> I heard something lovely on Radio 5 recently. A Radio 5 interview, I went to a Yorkshireman who was quite elderly, and uh, he was in, I think he was 85 or 84, I forgot now. But he began the interview by, interview by saying, I gather you've lived in the same house all your life. And the man said, not yet. <laughs> it's a classic quick comment. Um, but uh, as a Yorkshireman, I have brought a number of books with me. You, this isn't a Tupperware party. You don't have to buy anything. But, uh, and I don't make any money on any of the books. All of them, apart from the two at the back, which are hugely reduced anyway, are just a pound each. But if you haven't got the money, don't worry. Just take one. The, the one I'd like to mention this, this lunchtime is A Passion for Life. And in it are 14 stories of individuals and their journey of coming to Christ in the same way that we heard from, um, from Simon. So the first one is Vijay Menon, um, an engineer, a Hindu who was converted to Christ. We, and there are all sorts of things. Um, Jamie Jones Buchanan, professional rugby player. Though I have to say, this isn't Mamby Pamby rugby, this is rugby league. And uh, <laughs> I took a whole series of stories here. I think you'd really love it. And um, being on the Docklands Light Railway, I did feel, why isn't everybody reading? And so you can change their habits by getting a book and reading it on the way home. Um, a, a sentence that Jesus used, well, it's a question really. And I think it, it, it's quite profound. It's so stunning, I think it really would shake the city and Canary Wharf, etc., if it was taken very seriously. Many of you will be aware of it. He simply asked this question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now, don't feel that the word man is a gender man, it's humanity. What does it profit a person if he, she gains the whole world and loses their own soul? In other words, Jesus is saying if you could have everything that the world has to offer, all the money, all the reputation, all the status, all the fun, all the, the food, and, and whatever you, you dream of, if you could have it all, and as it were, put it on one side of the balance scales, and on the other side, put an individual's soul on the other side of the scales, down would go that side, up would go that side, it would be too light. I was once uh, in Speaker's Corner, Hyde Park, and uh, I've always liked to go there and I stand up whatever I can and have a little speaker once in a while. And uh, I was listening to another speaker and somebody shouted out at him, where is the soul in a human being? Interesting question. Quick as a flash, the answer came back. The same place that music is in the piano. Good answer. Uh, the soul is that part of us which was created to know and worship and appreciate and enjoy God and lives forever. So yes, I, I believe with Simon that um, you know we have our years here on earth, but after death, well if I can quote a great Yorkshire lady, um, uh, Anne Bronte said, death is but the doorway to eternal life. And she was speaking as a Christian woman. Let me tell you a story, and um, as I tell it, you've got to try and think in your mind, can I believe this or not, and I'll tell you at the end whether it's true or not. And it concerns a diamond dealer from London, who years ago used to go all over the world searching for the best jewels he could. And he'd gone to South Africa, he was on a cruise, he knew he'd got a few days 
docked there when he could go inland into South Africa and he would go to where the diamonds were for sale. Well, he made his way, and there was quite a sense of eager anticipation that, uh, you know, this is the place where I could buy what could make me a fortune. And he went to one particular small town, and yes, the shops were shut, but the grills in front of the windows allowed him to look in, and he saw what he thought, if that is true, that is the most enormous diamond I have ever seen. So first thing the next morning, he was there, and he wanted to um, ask the jeweler, could he look at it? And of course, you know, he had his eyeglass, and he examined it, and he realised this, this is a genuine diamond. And he had the money wired from uh, London across, and he bought this diamond. It, for him now, the whole trip was just an added luxury, a bonus, it being made worthwhile by this one diamond. Anyway, eventually he got back to his, hit the cruise liner, and um, he, he was just filled with excitement. He went onto the deck, and he pulled out of his pocket the box, and he opened it, and there, sure enough, was his diamond. He, he just was thrilled with it when he almost heard an audible voice. It wasn't, but it felt like it was. Throw it in the air. But it was an overwhelmingly strong voice, and, and sure enough, it got the better of him, and up it went, quickly put out his hand, and got into a cold sweat, but he grabbed it, and don't be so foolish, and he looked at it again, and once again, go on. Do it again. Throw it in the air. And, and he tried to resist that temptation, but for a second time, up it went. And for a second time, he put out his hand and grabbed it. And that, this is crazy, this is crazy. And he, he was going to make his way down to the steps and go to his cabin and just sort of cool and calm down, when a third time, <laughs> do it one more time. And he <laughs> said, go on dare you to do it one more time. But you can imagine, can't you? And once again he opened it up and he looked and, and again he went up in the air. But this time there was a slight jolt on the ship and he put out his hand. He touched the diamond but it fell to the deck. It rolled and he saw it go into the ocean. His immediate reaction was to turn to the, the captain on the bridge and say, stop, <laughs> stop, just, just let's, let's send down divers. But he realised this was ridiculous. He had lost an uninsured fortune. Now, is that story true or not? Well, we could have a vote, but I'll tell you the answer. I've no idea, really. <laughs> <laughs> I just read it. Well. <laughs> what an amazing story. But, if I was to believe it, I think I could give good reason for doing so. Because it seems to me that it's too easy to go through life and gamble with something that is of more value than even a diamond. To play around with the possibility of being lost, being cut off from God for all eternity. And as came out a little bit in the interview, the, the, the pressure at the moment from society, from the media, just from the tone, from education, is very secular very cynical about all things Christian and therefore it's very easy to sort of just go along with it all. Well, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a believer. I, I, I don't expect... There, there isn't any evidence without ever really looking at these things. But what is the point of life without a relationship with the one who gave us life? A week ago yesterday, I was in Bournemouth. I'd been there for the week doing um, a series of events a bit like this with a C of E church there. 
and the vicar had invited me to his home uh, for Sunday lunch and uh, I knocked on the door, I was a bit later than him, knocked on the door and his little eight-year-old son came to the door. He was a sweet little boy and he said, hello Mr Carswell, you're very welcome, would you like a drink? I said, that was very kind of you, thank you very much. I said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Titus. So I said, well, that's an unusual name. I said, do you know, not very far from where I live in, in, in Yorkshire, there was a man 150 years or so ago called Titus Salt. And he was a great philanthropist. And Saltaire, if you've ever been to that World Heritage site, was built by him. But I was a bit about to begin telling the story of Titus Salt to this little boy. And he said, I know all about Titus Salt. So I said, oh really? How do you know? He was my great, 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 great grandfather. I said, oh, that's amazing. And we began to chat about Titus Salt. He was a millionaire in his own day and he built eventually this wonderful town and gave all sorts of facilities, etc. for his workers. But he was converted as a millionaire because sitting in the garden one day he noticed a caterpillar creep its way up a coloured stick, get to the top and come down. And then move across to another stick and do the same again and come down. <laughs> and it happened a third time. And it made him think, just stop and think for a moment. Do you know, my life's a little like that. It seems so meaningless. I'm making all this money, I'm doing all these things, but so what? And he went to see the local clergyman and said, I need some help, what is life all about? And thankfully this clergyman was a real Bible-believing man who began to explain to him the Gospel. And Titus Salt was wonderfully converted. I'd, I'd love to tell you what, there isn't time. But... Um, what is life all about? And are we doing the right thing to sort of just push God to the edge of the plate of our lives? As so easily happens. And it can be done through very legitimate reasons, whether it's work or family or just, you know, getting the most out of life. Let's see what we can do. Let's, hundred things to do before I die. Let's get on and do them. Clearly, the Jesus who asked the question, what's the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? saw such value in an individual person, a soul if you want, that he came from heaven to earth with the express mission of eventually going to a cross. Now actually, ju just that sentence is quite something. He came from heaven, I arrived on the scene, you know, apparently nine months and three weeks, I was a bit late, but I just arrived, I didn't come from heaven, but Jesus did. He is the one who's the eternal one. But there was a moment in time and history when God was, as it were, big enough to become small. When God clothed himself in humanity. When God took on himself flesh and bones and blood. When God the creator became like us, his creation. That was a huge condescension. <coughs> Born and laid in a manger, but destined eventually to die on a cross. And hanging on that cross, of course, we're coming up to the Easter period. And the reason it's so significant is that Jesus had come with a massive act of rescue on his heart, on his agenda. He was born to die. Now, we are not. We, we want to live. We want to do this, etc. But he was born to die. And on the cross, God did something absolutely amazing. In fact, all of creation, the billions and billions of stars out there, are described in the Bible as the work of God's finger. 
But what Jesus accomplished on the cross is described as the work of God's arm. In other words, it was a more significant, more difficult thing that was accomplished because when Jesus was on the cross, all that is wrong about us, all that's wrong in the world, there's some things that hit the headlines as we've seen in the last few days in London, but the things that just harden our hearts against that which is right, against God himself. All our sin which would cut us off from God and keep us out of heaven and condemn us to hell, all our wrong, God took and laid on Jesus. And the Bible says things like he was made sin for us. He died the one who was righteous for we who are unrighteous. He died that he might bring us to God. He paid the penalty that it would take us all eternity to pay. And he did it because of the value of every individual. I interviewed in a similar way to the way I interviewed Simon uh, last November, a, an army chaplain. And he came out with a sentence which I thought was quite profound. He said, the reason we have, say, November 11th and Remembrance Services is because people matter. And it's true, people do matter. So much that God came from heaven to go to a cross and then a tomb and there he lay for those three days and nights until on that first Easter Sunday morning, of course, he rose from the dead. Mae West, the 1920s, 30s actress, was once asked, if you could have ten children or ten million pounds, which would you go for? She said, ten children. <coughs> and the interviewer said, oh, right, why? She said, if I had ten children, I wouldn't want any more. <laughs> good answer <laughs> and there is something about us that always wants more isn't there and yet the Lord Jesus Christ came to give us life abundant life he came so that we could be forgiven he came that we might be reconciled to God and going through life's journey and there are joys and tough times aren't there last Friday I think it was I interviewed a couple from Liverpool whose son had been murdered it was almost too horrendous to, you know, delve into in the questions. But they spoke about an attitude of wanting to forgive the person who'd done it, wanted to be a blessing to the person who'd done it. And eventually I asked, supposing you were to meet that person, and they said, do you know I've become a Christian? How would you react to that? They took your son, and they said, oh, we'd be overwhelmed with joy. Isn't that amazing? There is life, there is a relationship with God that's possible and it's worth more than anything else. We're here really this week to try and explore some of the aspects of the Christian message, some of the evidence for the Christian message and hear stories like Simon's and others and they, they come through different routes but to the same place where they said to the Lord Jesus Christ, please would you forgive me and come and live within me. I'm going 